This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2013 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Now streaming only on Hulu. He wears a tie, but without a suit. His chiseled abs and intense stare make women melt in their seats. And his hips, well, let's just say they don't lie. We're talking about Magic Mike, played by actor Channing Tatum. It's been just over a decade since the first Magic Mike was released. Today, the franchise has grown to include live shows around the world, merchandise, and now a third and final film, Magic Mike's Last Dance. What did you want before Miami? I just wanted to escape my life. Do you like bartending? It's not really what I do. What is it that you really do? Then you came along and gave me this unexpected, magical moment. That made me remember who I really was. The film opened in theaters across the country on Friday to mixed critical reviews, but to a decent weekend at the box office. It earned $8.2 million, leading a slow weekend at the movies. For this installment of the 1A Movie Club, a series where we discuss the latest films, we're unpacking the magic of Magic Mike, and whether on this Valentine's Day, his last dance still has the spark. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping services? Then give your business a competitive edge with USPS Ground Advantage. Keep things simple with upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. Turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into it. 
Joining us for this conversation is John Horn. He's the host of the LAist Studios podcast, Retake. He's also the arts and entertainment reporter at LAist 89.3 in Pasadena. John, it's always great to have you. Jen, it is great to see your face. Also with us is Aisha Harris. She's a critic and host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Aisha, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me. And Jacqueline Coley. She's the awards editor for Rotten Tomatoes. Jacqueline, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me as well. And just a quick warning, if you were concerned about spoilers for Magic Mike, there will be spoilers, but I, I don't know that anybody cares. Uh, so let's do a quick round robin. I want you each to rate the film on a scale of 1 to 10 and why. Aisha, I'll come to you first. Oh, um, I think I would give it a 6. Um, in the entire Magic Mike franchise, I think I would rate it as the third best. Okay, Jacqueline, your take? Oh, man, I can't go with numbers, but I would definitely say of the three, it is the third installment. Uh, But I think people would be surprised about uh, my rankings in the sense that it is a a closer three than some might assume. Okay. And John, what about you? The fact that you said there might be spoilers suggests that it might be a plot. Um, I'm going to give it a two um, and maybe a zero for missed opportunity cost. We'll get to that later. Now, what do your colleagues love the film, John? What did he say worked for him? Um, I think that, listen, when a character says at the beginning of the movie, I'm not going to dance, you can set your watch because in 90 minutes, that person is going to dance. Sorry. Magic Mike dances. Spoiler. Um, And it doesn't take 90 minutes. It it actually happens in the first well, the first Five thing, and then minutes. he's, yes, and then he's not going to dance in a show. Uh, he just says he's not going to. And I, I, I believed him, and I was lied to. Um, I think people who like dancing, I don't know how you would categorize the choreography. It's like Chippendales. Uh, you remember the solid gold dancers, mm-hmm. little solid gold dancers? And also, you know, kind of feels a little bit like kind of soft core gay porn from the 80s i don't know um that's a, if you like if you like people with no chest hair gyrating on stage it's it's the movie for you if you're looking for good dancing rihanna's super bowl halftime show is a lot better aisha for folks who haven't seen it what is this movie about so uh magic mike's last dance basically magic mike played by channing tatum um is he his furniture business which we knew about since the first movie hasn't panned out and now he's sort of bartending these ritzy parties and that's where he meets the selma hayek character who is this wealthy millionaire billionaire i don't know but she is uh she basically takes him in and she's like, look, I want you to work for me. They also have a little bit of flirtation. Um, and she brings him to London to help revive her uh, this production, this theater production, and turn it into a male review that's all about women's empowerment and women's desires. And so, you know, it, it takes the movie from Florida and, and puts it in kind of dreary London. Most of the movie is set in, the, in a dark theater in London. Um, and it, it's a very, like, bare bones at, at the heart of it a let's put on a show like those barnyard musicals yeah. at the Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney days. It's that but set in the present. Well, here's the message we got from one of you who watched the film over the weekend. I watched Magic Mike with my uh, girlfriend this weekend and I have to say I was uh, disappointed. It felt anticlimactic. There was a lot of buildup, and I compared it to bad sex. But a lot of buildup and no climax. I definitely liked the first two better. I thought it ended 
really poorly. Now, Deborah has a slightly different take. Deborah emails, sometimes it just feels good to watch attractive, determined people overcome life's trials while shaking their arse. Um, I'm sorry, this is this conversation has cracked me up. Jacqueline, I mean, would you, I don't know how many expectations you had going into this movie, but did it fall short of your expectations or did it meet them? I mean, first of all, I just want to say to John, what did you, what did you expect? Were you not entertained? Like, I don't want to be this girl, but do I have to be this girl? Do I have to stand up for, for thirst everywhere? Um, I will agree with you on this. I do think Magic Mike is a bit of a missed opportunity, but maybe not in the way people think. I, I agree with the caller who was saying it was a bit of a climax. I mean, these people are putting on a show, so it's going to feel way more like our town than it's going to feel like the lawbreaker, you know, Matthew McConaughey sort of like tempting us all with this male flesh that we saw in the previous sequels. I think what really the the more interesting thing about it is my expectations were with Steven Soderbergh. And so knowing that he was back in the director's chair this time around, I knew and expected that he was going to be more akin to the first installment, which actually did touch on serious issues. I think people forget the first one. People actually remarked on how disappointing it was that there wasn't as much, I would say, sort of like thirsty women squealing sections as the trailers made us think. And the second film was supposed to give us that that moment. And I think this third installment is trying to find the balance between the two, and that might be the problem. Well, despite the mixed reviews, the film was number one at the box office. John, put the $8.2 million it made into context for us. How how much money is that in movie terms? I mean, it, it's not bad. Uh what it represents, though, to me, is that it's all sequels all the time. And if you look at the last uh, year's movies, the top ten movies, each and every one was a sequel, spinoff, prequel. And that, to me, is part of the problem, that Steven Soderbergh has, is a great filmmaker. A great filmmaker. You know, Out of Sight, The Limey, Traffic, Aaron Brockovich, The First Oceans, King of the Hill, The Underneath, so many good movies. And this is not one of them. So for a sequel, it does okay. But to me, it's part of the problem. Steven Soderbergh could have done so many other interesting movies, and instead he did this. Not a hit, not a flop, but again, lost opportunity. I'd much rather have seen an original story from Steven Soderbergh than this. And points to comparing Magic Mike to Thornton Wilder. I love the Our Town uh, strip stripper comparison. Amazing. Well, we have to admit, though, the Magic Mike franchise, despite what you feel about this film, it's incredibly popular. Like I said, there are the films, there are live shows, there's merchandise. Aisha, why do you think this franchise is so popular? Well, for me, Magic Mike Double XL, and I don't mean this at all hyperbolically, but like it is one of the best films of the last like 10 years, I would argue, in part because it takes the first film and sort of completely reworks it and makes it what that expectation of what the first film, like Jacqueline was talking about, was supposed to be, which is something that really caters to and acknowledges that women have desire and doesn't treat it as a joke, but treats it as, you know, something to be joyful about. About and exciting and exciting and something to um, luxuriate in. In the first film, there's a scene where one of the characters does a very f- funny but also really kind of just amazing dance to I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys, all to make this woman in a convenience store smile. And I think that 
like tapping into that has made it so that a lot of its audience, whether it's gay men or or women, have been able to really see themselves in that film. And I think that is what sort of helped make this franchise become what it is, which is, you know, something that is mostly appealing to a lot of the audiences that are not usually served by these other big franchises, women and queer people and queer queer men. Well, after the break, I want to get into the dancing in this film and how it compares to the the first two movies, but also into the relationship between Magic Mike and Selma Hayek, Pinot's character, Max. That's coming up after the break. Before we go to break, let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's a message we got from one of you. Back in 1987, I was a publicist for Chippendales and helped book a lot of their Western tours and was on the road with them. And that was definitely an interesting job, though my son, my fiance at the time, wasn't one bit pleased about it. But I did see Magic Mike 1 and 2, and they were okay. They were racy and fun and sexy. I have not seen 3 yet, but I hear it's better, so I look forward to it. Thanks for that message. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping services? Then give your business a competitive edge with USPS Ground Advantage. Keep things simple with upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. Turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard, wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Let's get back to the movie club's discussion of Magic Mike's Last Dance. Now, Selma Hayek-Pinot plays Maxandra in the film. She was on Jimmy Kimmel Live earlier this month, and they discussed the steamy dance between her and Channing Tatum's character that opens the movie. I mean, it is, you are, um, he's like, he's chanting all over your Tatum is what he's doing. He's lifting you up, he's, you're on his head, you're up against the wall, you're up against the glass. Mm -hmm. It really, I mean, that had to be somewhat exciting, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was also challenging, technical. It seemed like it yeah. was. It seemed a little bit dangerous, actually. It was. That's all, you know, there's one part that's not in it where I'm upside down and my legs had to be somewhere. <laughs> but upside down, one loses sense of direction. Now, the majority of Magic Mike's Last Dance is spent on the romance between Salma's character and Channing Tatum's character. Jacqueline, what did you think about this relationship and, and the chemistry between the two of them? I mean, 
that's the part where I don't want to say this because they are two very beautiful people. They are so beautiful and they have so much charisma. But I do want to remind people that the original casting for this was Tandy Newton and uh, Channing Tatum. And 11 Days In, uh, Tandy had to leave the production. And I think the chemistry between those two is one that I would have found much more believable in everything. Just the fact that it's set in London. I mean, it was just... I know Selma was filming, filling in and she does an amazing job. Her and Channing seem to be having great times together. But they always, to me, struck me as more like these two would be great friends more than I was a believable romance between them. I don't know. It could be just me. Aisha, what about you? Yeah, I think overall the the character, and despite the fact that the movie posits itself as a romance drama in many ways, I don't think the romance is really fleshed out. It's kind of underwritten and confusing, and for part of the movie, he's not even sure what's going on in their relationship, and he keeps you know asking like, why why are you bringing me to London? And she won't tell him. It's all this weird sort of like millionaire, rich, wealthy person. I'm sort of mysterious, and I'm not going to let you get to really know me, but I think it underserves the the narrative that it's trying to tell. And so while that opening dance between him and her are one of the highlights of the franchise, I loved that scene. I think that overall, once they start having dialogue and, and interacting with one, one another when it doesn't involve dance, it, it kind of falls apart. Well, uh, let's get to the dancing in the film. Uh, again, let's rate it on a scale of one to 10 and why. Now, John... I know you are are the professional among us. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about that. I mean, it is it is it is not great choreography. By the way, a caller mentioned Chippendales. If you're uh-huh. interested in Chippendales, a fantastic podcast called Welcome to Your F- Fantasy about that uh, about Chippendales. To me, there's one really good piece of choreography, and it happens in a bus, and it doesn't last long enough, and it also doesn't make any sense. The issue is that a woman called named Edna, with a name like that, you know she's a killjoy. She she is played by Vicki Pepperdine, and she's an officious British civil servant, and she's ordered that Magic Mike's dance extravaganza be closed down because I think what the stage is a half an inch too high, Something three quarters like that, of an inch yeah. high. And we see her closing down another show, which kind of looks like Swan Lake, but we don't know why. And so when she's on a bus, Magic Mike's dancers do this little dance that's pretty clever to try to win her over somehow. And it ends with a male ballerina who looks like he was plucked straight out of Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake. And just like that, Edna decides the show can go on. But is Edna fuddy-duddy or is she super cutting edge and likes choreography by people like Matthew Bourne, Michaela Taylor, Stephen Hoggett? I don't know. But that, to me, was the best piece of dancing. It was on the bus, but it didn't make any sense narratively. Aisha, what about for you? What did you think of the dancing? I don't think there was enough of it. Um, Yeah, like John said, that scene was way too short. Um, I think that there's also a sort of... and a, a. of course, there's like the big finale where there's you see the most of the show and you see all these dancers. But my, my other issue with this movie is that you don't even get to know any of the other dancers because they don't bring back the original cast except for a really poorly shot Zoom call, at like cameo. So you have the other guys from the first two movies in that scene. But then you bring in all these new younger talent and you see them dance. But when those dances happen at the end, I don't know I don't know their names. They don't even have any dialogue really. Um, and so there's not that connection. Like you want to kind of have a connection with these dancers like we do with Mike. Um, and I think that's sort of what enhances the choreography and the performances. And that's really sorely missing from this film. Okay, Jacqueline, I want to hear from you. And I'm just going to first share what might be an unpopular uh, 
an unpopular opinion. In the first two movies, what you had, in my opinion, were actors, I think maybe even like a wrestler, they were not dancers and they would dance, but it wasn't great dancing. Um, it was it was entertaining, it was amusing, but I wouldn't call it strong dancing. And in this movie, it seems like they've brought in a bunch of professional dancers. And so the choreography is tighter, it's cleaner, um, it's maybe a little less spontaneous, but just at its core, it's better dancing. Jacqueline, what's your take? Are you saying that you don't think Kevin Nash is Fred Astaire? Because I would argue, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I agree with you. The first two installments they were going for people like Alex. Now, Channing is an actual, I would say, dancer. Obviously, folks recognize him from Step It Up. But it was sort of like when Cher was in burlesque and she was the only one that sang. And mm-hmm. so it therefore put into stark contrast everyone around her. Uh, absolutely, the dancing this time around is leveled up immensely. And it really does, you know, seem to be taking it seriously. It's much more akin to a West End show in that respect. And that's more what it feels like you're you're putting it on. It, it reminds me in a lot of ways of the Judy Dench um, uh, focus features film a few from a few years ago. I think it was like Mrs. Predigrew or something where she was putting on a show. It's very oh, that. And, yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, even in that, the, the quirky um, oddness of that was just centered around the woman herself. There was no this romantic interest partner. And so I think, again, that's what muddles a lot of this stuff. And that was probably due to circumstance. But I also think that the sort of cheekiness of the first two movies and that it really, it wasn't as professional. Like I, I don't know about anybody else, but the Matthew McConaughey dancing at the end of the second Magic Mike I was like, oh, this is so awkward. I'm not, it's, but it was funny. There was more, I felt like there was just more humor in it as well. John, what do you think? I mean, I think you're right. It's like um, sports movies. There is a Russell Crowe ice hockey movie. I'm not making this up from 1999 called Mystery Alaska. And it's like Russell Crowe is shot so far away because you know he can't play hockey. Uh, And then they do a close up where it's somebody else skating. You can hire an actor who might be able to ice skate or you can hire ice skaters who might be able to act, which is what happened in miracle Gavin O'Connor story about the U S uh, uh, winter Olympic ice hockey team. These, I agree. These uh, dancers, some of them come from the street. Some are, you know, people who are dancing other places. We don't know any of them. They're very good dancers, but we don't know who they are as actors or characters. Yes, they can dance, but that's but it misses the point of them trying to learn something, fish out a water story. It's, they're no Matthew McConaughey's in terms of having a little humor. They're, they take their jobs very seriously, and they're also they look like the most unhappy dancers. They're never smiling. They're just glum. It doesn't look like they're having a good time. And and part of the fun of the first two movies, I think, too, was just the camaraderie you saw between the dancers. And we're kind of missing that here as well. Well, I want to play a message from one of our producers. Upon the release of the third Magic Mike, I'm now realizing that I haven't seen the first two, which is which feels very wrong of me. I'm, I'm embarrassed. So I'm thinking maybe I'll, I'll have a little movie marathon with some of my friends before seeing the third one. But what I have seen is the Magic Mike live show in Las Vegas. Uh, I went with three of my friends and it was hilarious. It was so much fun. The dancers were so, so, so talented. Um, and Channing Tatum's voice was narrating the whole thing. It was one of my favorite experiences I've had in Vegas. 
We also got this email from Tiffany who says, 30 years ago I worked as a stripper. I'm now a dance professor and a filmmaking teacher at a large university. I have only seen the first Magic Mike film, and although it was entertaining, from my experience, the strip club environment for women is different than for men. Male strippers are applauded for their sexual prowess, and women strippers are just seen as what they already are, objects for the male gaze. Although gender identities are selling a fantasy, as a female stripper, it was often assumed that since I was dancing topless, that was also an invitation for more. We also got this email from Stuart that echoes that, given how much women are sexualized in America, I think it's fine for women to enjoy the opposite in a lighthearted sexualization of men. Now, Aisha, one of the big themes in the film, as we said, is this idea of appealing to the female fantasy. How does this show up in the movie and in the franchise in general? Well, um, you know, in the, I feel like the first Magic Mike is very similar to the third one in that, like, it's it's a little bit more serious. Although in the first Magic Mike, I think it's more geared, even though it is about male dancers, it is still more geared, I think, to this idea of... Um, not so much the female gaze, as it were, but just like admiring these guys' bodies and and also their athleticism and and whatnot. And the second film, I think, for me, what made it so different and so revolutionary in many ways is that it showed female desire, not just of a certain kind of woman, but all different types of women. So you had uh, the Jada Pinkett Smith character, who was sort of a madam in a way of of this like brothel, not quite a brothel, but like a, a house where lots of men dance for women and for pri- like private parties. Um, and you you had Andy McDowell playing a character um, who also meets the guys and, and gets to enjoy their company. Um, and so you see this wide range of desire amongst women of all ages, ethnicities, and, and um income. And here in the third film, it's it's played out a little bit differently where it's mostly filtered through the Salma Hayek Pino character um, and one other character who is starring in the in the, the theatrical play. Um, and you don't get as much of that sense of desire across all these other different demographics. And I think for me, that was part of what what I missed and I wanted a little bit more of just like in Double XL. Jacqueline, I'd love to hear your take on that as well. How well does the movie appeal to the female fantasy? I mean, I I would agree to what Aisha said. There is a lot of fan service to the idea of female empowerment. Again, however, we get... Although we do get to get glimpses of it, I think because the Selma Hayek character isn't really the center of this narrative, as much as it would appear to seem that maybe she would have been, it doesn't really gel all the way, as Aisha said, entirely all the way through. But there are really great glimpses. And I will have to say, just in general, I think the idea of women going to the theater on Valentine's Day or Galentine's Day and having a movie like this as sort of counter-programming is always really important. I think one thing we haven't talked about is the reason why this movie exists is because Valentine's Day is still a really great holiday for women to spend together. And I think in the current climate, more and more women are finding this to be a holiday where they want to experience different types of love, maybe even between each other, enjoying watching Channing Tatum dance for all he can dance for. <laughs> John, any, anything to add? Uh, maybe that explains where my wife is. She said she was at a company retreat. Um, yeah, I, there's this narration that is provided by Max's daughter, Zadie, uh, played by the actress Jamelia George. And it has this kind of feminist tilt. Um, there's a mention that she's working on a novel, but she's 
not really working on novel because instead she's apparently using a bunch of artificial intelligence writing programs to assemble this narration where it's like since Neanderthals gathered around the fire, they understood motion. And it just feels like discount Joseph Campbell talking about strippers as if they were some performing some sacred ritual rooted in myth and folklore. So you like wish, it is what I hear you saying, John. Uh, you, you love the narration. Is That's what I'm picking up here. Give me more of it. <laughs> give me more of it. No, but it, it's where the movie is trying to have it both ways. Just indulge in the fantasy. Don't have this important folkloric Campbell-esque analysis of dance and ritual because it's strippers. I mean, it doesn't really play. And there's no shame in strippers. I think it's great. I you know, I think there's nothing wrong with it, but when you're trying to make it something that it isn't, it just feels like you're trying to have it both ways and failing. So so what I'm hearing sort of across the board is just maybe a little more dancing, a little more fun for this third installment of Magic Mike. Now, it's called The Last Dance, but Aisha, do you really think this is The Last Dance? No, not at all. <laughs> uh, look, it might be it might be Channing Tatum's last dance. Ah. Like maybe maybe it is Magic Mike's last dance. But I am sure, um, you know, anytime there's more money to be made, and like John said, we are in we've been in the franchise era for decades now at this point. So um, there will be more, I'm sure. I'm sure there will probably, who knows, TV. There could be a TV spinoff. I know there was like a Magic Mike sort of reality show, I believe. Um, But I can see them trying to bring a narrative to the small screen because... There is no no franchise, no familiar property that Hollywood does not want to pummel into the ground. <laughs> okay, so Jacqueline, where does this franchise go? If there if this is Magic Mike's last dance, where would you like to see it maybe go? Oh my God! If it's Magic Mike's last dance, maybe we do a. They're not going to give it up entirely. They'll probably do a prequel of Matthew McConaughey's character and how he sort of rose to fame in the rough and wild '80s, and it'll be like their version of Yellowstone. I don't know. They'll like expand the universe some some way, some shape or form. This is not the thing I should be good at. I have. We all have to watch so many of these iterations, having us have to think of what is going to be the next thing that they figure out a way to keep these IP things going. It's just not fun. I don't know. <laughs> John, I mean, what do you think? Is this the end of the the end of the line for Magic Mike? Well, if so, they should have called it Magic Mike's penultimate dance. Um, <laughs> who knows? Maybe we can get an origin story. Maybe there's a parallel universe where Magic Mike has clones that dance just like him. I don't know. Um, yes, if it succeeds and it has su- succeeded a little bit, uh, there will be another... Channing Tatum, by the way, I want to give him props. Dude looks great. He can dance. Acting, I don't know, but props to Channing Tatum. He is very good in this film, and if there's more Channing Tatum dance movies, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Well, he has definitely perfected the blue steel gaze, and he uses it abundantly in this movie. For this movie club, we've been discussing the film Magic Mike's Last Dance with arts and entertainment reporter for LAist 89.3, John Horn. Also with us, NPR's pop culture happy hour host, Aisha Harris, and Rotten Tomato Awards editor, Jacqueline Coley. Today's producer was Haley Blassingate. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. Without 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Turn shipping to your advantage with USPS Ground Advantage Service. Learn how to gain a competitive edge at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.